0: whatever i go on tour it's up and down like that and i'll get to some city and i'll be like yeah this is amazing they know my music and there's people here we're all gonna have a great time and you get to the next and you're like things are really working out there i don't know how you know the shit's out there um that's a lovely feeling and people are enjoying the art and that's what you want when you're an artist, you know, and then the next town there'll be like no one there, you know, and you're like, Oh, I think are not working at all. You know? <laughs> I, I should stay home. I should hang this up. And then you get to the next town and, you know, so maybe it's good again. And you're like, well, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. And, um, it's just very random out there. I mean, I I know that there's people probably like Dan Auerbach or whatever, who they don't really experienced that or whatever you know like they're just from town to town there's always a guaranteed audience you know because they've broken through a certain public consciousness layer or something Mm -hmm. like that
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame, episode 61. I'm Jamie. It is June twenty eighth, 2018. The world is going down the fucking drain. It looks like the Supreme Court is screwed for the next few decades. And I'm here today to try to give you an hour and change of distraction from that. That's all I can offer right now. And I was cracking up. Because I'm really short on time. I'm heading down to the city today. I've got to get there by a certain time because my best friend Tom has got us tickets to see Yola Tango on a boat. So I have to get there before the boat leaves South Street Seaport. So I don't have time to edit this intro the way I usually do. So, as a really shitty man once said, fuck it, we'll do it live. So, hi. My guest today is an old friend from San Francisco, Sonny Smith. Uh, you know, may know him as Sonny from Sonny and the Sunsets. Uh, I think most of you probably don't know him at all, except for the fact that I'm going to post this on Facebook and tag all my old San Francisco friends. Uh, Sonny's a musician. He's made a whole bunch of albums. And let me tell you a little bit about his most uh, recent one. Before I go on, here is the very short, uncredited, so I can't tell you who wrote it, review from Mother Jones Magazine. On his own, or as leader of Sunny and the Sunsets, the engaging Sunny Smith specializes in finely observed vignettes about everyday people that showcase his wry, slackerish voice. For all its rough edges, though, there's nothing casual about his scruffy garage pop, which tempers a streak of melancholy with offhand, self-aware wit. That's all true, I'd say. Produced by Black Keys frontman Dan Auerbach, who just started his own label, who knows a thing or two about making eccentricity accessible, Rod for Your Love is Smith's most commercial effort yet. It's all relative, boasting a brighter sound and sunnier no pun intended, vibe than before. Witness the jaunty, toe-tapping optimism of the irresistible lost where he chirps I Know the Way This Time or the romantic drama Burning Up featuring Angel Olson's tangy harmonies. While Smith may never top the charts, he's never been more entertaining or more deserving of mainstream attention. And Sonny and I talk a lot about mainstream attention and on getting to make an album with a big deal, famous person, but then deciding not to tour with it because you want to go home and work on your art show and your next project instead. Uh, uh, Dan Auerbach is on the album, as is Pat Sansom from Wilco, and as mentioned in the review there, uh, Angel Olsen. A few people or places you might not know about that we talk about. We mentioned Kelly. That's Kelly Stoltz, another musician. Virgil Shaw uh is virgil and the makeout room is a bar where he used to play and i used to work in the mission in san francisco and we laugh about it because the crowd there now is probably a lot different than it was then we talk about some old friends we talk about his residency at the headlands 15 years ago and the roller skating party at the end of that that was amazing that was the Headlands center for the arts uh let's see what else is on my notes uh any Psycho Funkapus fans out there, there's a great Adam Ellis hero story. And Sonny and I swap uh, Robin Hitchcock and Spalding Gray fan stories. And I talk about his son, who's now 14, reading a book called Bozarts that I'll put a link to in that I made a bunch of years ago. And aside from the album, he had a big... Uh, multimedia art show at Gallery 16 in San Francisco this spring uh, right as the album was coming out so instead of touring he went home to make his art show and we talk a lot about that and the choices one makes uh, as an artist in terms of success monetary success, fame um, and all that crap we usually talk about here on 15 Minutes I think that's all I need to tell you Sonny and I spoke uh in april right before i headed down to new york to see him and it was great to talk to him and then to see him after so many years here is sonny
2: smith
0: is this jamie
1: it is hey sonny hey man how are you all right how you been for the last decade yeah pretty good 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 you sound the same yeah. yeah? Yeah, my voice hasn't changed yet. No no puberty for me. <laughs> no, that's good because you've got a brand there. That that vo- that voice, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So, what have you been making here? I saw, I didn't listen to Beth Lissick's, but I saw it when it was posted.
1: Yeah, I would think that would be a good one for you to check out because Beth and I talked about old times and new, and she's going to actually. come up to uh western mass i'm gonna do like a live variety show taping of the of the show generally it's conversations with people from my friend tim to somewhat famous people talking about the joys and horrors and fucked up shit about fame
0: when did you get interested
1: in fame (laughs) i I like the (laughs) i like the uh the, the flip around uh
0: yeah i'll interview you uh
1: I, I feel like I've always been fascinated and both attracted and repulsed at the same time.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: Yeah. I I really... When you wrote back and said, happy to talk about lack of fame, you'd be shocked at how few people say that.
0: Oh, really? Because they perceive themselves as famous or something? or
1: No, either they if they are famous somewhat then they'll be like okay and then I'll end up convincing them we can have a fun conversation or if they're not they're like <clears throat> people pretend it's not a it's not an issue or it's not a thing they think about and i say pretend cuz i don't i don't believe them and and there'll be people be like ew that's gross and then there'll be people who are like uh, call me back when i'm famous oh god I mean, like well, that's not the point. I want to talk to you because you're interesting.
0: Well, I don't think there's any artists that don't haven't thought about it. That seems kind of insincere if they're like, "Oh, I never think about that." I mean, we'd all like to be total purists, but if you're even halfway involved with, you know, contemporary culture, then it's in your face. Yeah,
1: and even if you decide I'm not going to pursue this and I'm going to make my music or my art. And whatever happens, happens. It's still, it's still there. It's in your face, as you said. Um, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And as I've like spent a good bit of the last week, like looking at stuff that's been written about you, because you know, I've been, I've been out of touch. You know, I was, I was, I, I ordered the seven-inch single uh, years ago of, um, uh, of the hit. <laughs>
0: Of which, of uh, of your of too young to burn. Of too young to burn. Oh, uh,
1: oh yeah. Remember that when you like ha-
0: a, my micro hit?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I love that song, but I just haven't listened to much music in the past few years. And I've I've enjoyed, of course, I like the more synthy, new wavy stuff because that's where I come from. But I've always liked your stuff. But uh, you know, since I haven't really thought about <laughs> since we were since we were in the Headlands roller skating. Uh, about oh, yeah. what you know, you've been up to, or when I've shown people the video of your son, Oliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that the name? Oh, that's wow. Yeah. That makes me feel a little better about my memory.
0: Yeah, he's 14 now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Has he, has he ever seen the video of himself reading the bow book? I'm sure that might not be as important to you as
0: it is to me. I don't know. We go. We watch some of those old videos sometimes. He might have seen it. Yeah. I don't think it's of his interest. You know, he watches like basketball highlights on Instagram and stuff.
1: I'm a big NBA fan, real big. That's oh, my... well,
0: he knows everything. Yeah,
1: that's the only you should sport... interview him. I should. I totally should about the NBA. That's the only sport I still follow. But so as I've been reviewing the documents out there uh, on Pitchfork, etc., about you, and in more more smaller locally things what i what i thought about in terms of this little project of mine is that i think one of the things that determines success and fame is how easily pigeonholed you are and and you aren't
0: no yeah i mean i haven't really made the greatest choices as far as if i wanted to climb that ladder of of popularity or renown i suppose um much to the consternation of label people and publicists and stuff. Um, I just have wanted to pursue my own creative things. And they've often taken me away from like touring or doing things that would probably garner more success in that way. If I if I just made a bunch of too young to burns over the last few years or something, <laughs> you know, I, perhaps things would be different. I have no idea, but um uh, I, pursue you know different art projects that there's no money in and stuff like that so Mm -hmm. uh, i'm much more um satisfied as an artist but um but then sometimes around build time i'm like why am i um why am i making this you know (laughs) monologue uh play when i should be out there i don't know touring and stuff like that so i'm definitely someone who's maybe just chosen chosen creative pursuits over, you know, designed routes for success, I guess.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, if you start to say success, well, I don't know, you're defining success in terms of doing what you want. Even if, yeah, like me, the bills, the bills aren't a given that they're paid, but I don't feel like I've made a lot of compromises I'm unhappy with. ask you about uh, whether this is the first time I don't know what label you've been on before your new one whether this is the first time you have been put in the you know uh, I think of you as at least partially self producing everything you make and and I don't know whether you've been with other you know labels by controversial rock stars before (laughs) and I'm wondering what what that's like um, with the Dan Auerbach
0: now this was definitely a More of an anomaly. Um, I uh, yeah, I didn't produce this myself, and I sort of let go of control of certain things and kind of put myself in the um, trust of another producer. And it was it was exciting. It was it was a it was a really interesting experience. I mean, he Dan had been um, covering Too Young to Burn on Uh tour. On world tour or something and uh it got back to me through a friend of his in his band and they were like oh we're coming to san francisco we've been playing your song you want to get up on stage and sing sing the song too and so that was kind of how i met Even met dan mm-hmm. was just kind of this one day on stage at the film war and then we just kept in touch and he was like, "Oh, you know it'd be great to produce and then he's he's a real um producer producer he's got his own studio in Nashville, so at the end of a tour we just uh, designated some time and went there and really made it in like five days um and wow. it was it was a real treat His studio was incredible and um just like a studio should be it was wasn't huge or crazy but it had a a bunch of you know great stuff in there and then he he really knows how to produce he's uh he's very fast and and um he gets uh the band just sort of gets going and start building it and the next thing you know it's kind of like three or four songs are down so it was um it was really intriguing to watch him work Whereas when I produce my own stuff, it's very like uh, parceled out and I'll get a song or two, record with my friends, maybe wait a month till another song comes down the pike, you know, make another one, stuff like that.
1: Well, I remember back in in what album was it about the fighter?
0: Oh, yeah. This is my story. This is the song. Yeah.
1: That you you record. You just recorded me
0: singing a line. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually kind of prefer making records in my way which is bit by bit because it kind of gives me structure over the year sort of it's like this is what i'm doing this year a lot of bands you know save up all their songs and their money and over two years or three years and then go to a studio for a couple weeks and make it all and that has a lot of merit obviously but it's never been my but then you're kind of done uh for for the next two or three years so it's um
1: I like my way better. I I, I agree. Then you're creating the whole time. Yeah. And playing and doing, yeah, it seems like a more integrated way to live. I'm guessing that you, even though it's not called a Sunsets record, you just hit Nashville and worked with people you usually work with, but there, and maybe with some other people. I know you uh, had a guest singer, but aside from that.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I had my band with me, so we 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 from we were already kind of warmed up from tour, so it wasn't hard to just sail in and play a bunch of songs. But um, but yeah, it was. Dan played a lot on it, and then there was a friend, Pat Sansom, who's in Wilco, and he lives in Nashville, and he showed up, and he was kind of like a an amazing presence too, because he's one of those guys that can just play everything and has ideas and stuff. So. It was definitely a new to. It was just wasn't my normal experience for sure. It was great, and I did. Want, I did. Did kind of feel like it was a solo solo record for some reason. It didn't feel like a Sunsets record, but I can't exactly say why.
1: Did you tour when it when did it came out in February? Did you tour at all?
0: March second. Oh,
1: so it just came out.
0: Uh, I toured a little. I I made some small tours, you know, on the West Coast and stuff in the Northwest just almost more uh, obligatory kind of i knowing i should get out there and support it a little bit but i going into the record i was pretty burnt out on touring and i told them you know if you guys want to put the record out because dan was starting his own label and he he wanted to put out what he was producing i kind of had to say like no nah, i'm not going to tour and they, were, they had to, to sort of decide, well, should we put this out, even if he's not going to kind of like go around the world and advertise it and stuff. So, um, and they were cool with it. So, uh, no, the answer is no, I haven't toured much. I got really burnt out on touring at the end of 2016. So I took a year off and started going to uh, art school and making some other things. Oh, really? I didn't know that i took a bunch of painting and drawing classes
1: would there be any chance that dan or someone would say hey want to come along on an arcs tour
0: well he did actually do this kind of label review tour although i wasn't on it uh but it was shannon and the clams were kind of featured and when they came to san francisco i jumped up there and played some songs but uh um, i wasn't really part of the the vast train rolling through america kind of thing but um Uh, Because that was my choice to just—I just wanted to stay home. (laughs) I'm, uh, I'm having more fun um, just creating every day rather than being on the road. And, And that's that's exactly
1: the kind of thing that I've been thinking more and more about in terms of talking to people who are more and less successful, and some who are wildly so, and are you know much more sensibly focused on okay so this is a career that i'm supposed to build and promote than i've ever been but i feel like that those people yes that what they're doing is is great but i don't know what i'm trying to say something about the (laughs) fact that people who decide to stay just do their thing Uh, i don't know i like them better i mean i like when somebody like that gets swooped up and and the world sees them. But if you take someone like you, and you try to swoop them up, and they're not that swoop prone, yeah, it doesn't usually,
0: you know. Yeah, and uh, like I said, like I was touring a lot, and then I got burnt out, and I think that happens to a lot of artists too, which is that um, maybe they do heed the call of, of touring and then supporting their music and stuff and they become you know super road dogs and travel nine or ten months out of the year and and that's a great life like if you want it but um but it has its downsides too and yeah uh, you know there's no i mean one thing that i've always thought about with all this stuff is there really isn't any silver bullets i mean there are these artists that really are ambitious and they travel they tour as their asses off and and they might have success or they might not it might pan out it might not pan out and um and then there are artists that don't tour that much and have a hit and and, and that happens you know and they don't
2: Mm -hmm.
0: necessarily need to travel 10 months out of the year and it's interesting that that there are a lot of people that sit around and Certainly, all the people in the industry are constantly trying to sort of figure out what works all the time, and and um, I, I've, I sit on in on some of those business meetings sometimes, and it, it just they sound they always sound a little more confident than than reality would, you know, should designate. I guess, for lack of a better way of saying it, you know, they'll be like, well, you gotta do this, and you gotta do that, you gotta do this, and then you'll get to do that. And, um, I'm always like, yeah, nah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's, that totally is true. It's proven here, but it's not proven there, you know, things like that. And the industry can be very insidious in a way to sort of, you know, that the booking agents and the labels are, and the publicists are all oriented towards you being as busy as possible in the public eye. Right. I mean, that's what that's kind of the game that
2: Mm
0: -hmm. movie stars and rock stars are playing, you know, like I got to go do this now. I got to go do this. I got to fly and go do Letterman or whatever, you know? And, um, yeah, you know, like there's, there's no guarantee that that is going to equal success or fame or whatever people are going for. I just feel like it's a very hard thing to, to sort of quantify. It's all sort of, Could be's and possible, possibly might be's and things like that. So you, in the end, you kind of do have to just decide what you want to do the most. Right, and the the compromise is,
1: is that you 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 either get to or don't get to have a regular daily life at home and a creative life that's constant instead of sporadic.
0: Yeah, and it certainly wouldn't be good for raising kids. And a lot of our a lot of you know music people that i know are um i don't know you know like touring touring ends up being not that far from working in an office i mean you're just still kind of trying to climb some ladder there's just no guarantee that that's exactly going to be what makes uh, life great for you i guess in terms of
1: like being having someone show up you know what 15 20 years into your career and you know whisk you off to nashville and make make a record do you feel like that was a one-off that was fun or do you feel like it changes anything for you
0: uh definitely it definitely doesn't change anything for me but it was certainly fun and i'm glad i did it and it's just one more record that i put out there of music that i'm proud of and stuff like that so it, um it's just part of the whole body of work you know and i like to be prolific so by the time usually a record comes out anyway i'm I'm already kind of got something new going on mm-hmm. creatively that kind of takes is is more my passion you know once it's finished to me it's kind of like i think that maybe that's the hard part about touring to some extent is that once the creative process of making the record is done there's a finality there and it's kind of nice to to clean the slate and and, and let your creative imagination move on and stuff. And meanwhile, the the sort of record labels and the publicists are like trying to figure out how to to sell it, you know, basically, and they need your help. (laughs) (laughs) And and they're like, well, you got to make a video for this or something like that. And, and, you know, I'm not against any of that. I think that's all part of the creativity too. But like, you might already be kind of working on a new record and, And they're kind of saying, you know, um, or not they are saying, but there's this kind of other thing pulling at you going, well, you know, you you need to, um, you know, be playing these songs or, or, Mm -hmm. or making videos for these songs. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, you're like, damn, you know, I already did this. This is already like, I would, I wrote these songs a couple of years ago. I'm, you know, I like them, but I'm, I got new stuff, you know. So that's always something to kinda of
1: balance too. Oh, I was talking to a comedian recently who just published a book that's like a comedic memoir about the death of her father. It's kind of like, you know, morbid jokes about his dying and how to deal with your loved one dying. But the book just came out and she made the the special and the set of you know, of comedy and wrote the notes for it three years ago now. And I asked her, Is this is this just like bringing up old stuff you don't really care about doing anymore. And she frankly was like, yeah, I'm not enjoying this at all. Uh, (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, that's real.
1: uh, You did make two videos for this, right?
0: I made three. Yeah. But the third one isn't out yet. And I don't know when it's going to come out or if it will or that kind of stuff. But, but yeah, yeah. And they were fun to make. Absolutely. But, um, but it was also, even at the time I was like, while i was making the videos i was writing new stuff too so it's kind of you're sort of balancing again you know the the stuff you're the most passionate about which is the newest stuff and also sort of you know taking care of the stuff you already just to sort of to sort of present the stuff you already made so it's an interesting kind of thing you have to kind of just balance in your mind i guess or heart yeah
1: I have to admit, I was introduced to Angel Olson through you, so that that's probably backwards from a lot of people oh yeah, uh, yeah uh, and she actually sounds like what you are described as all the time, which I don't really get, which is garage i don't
0: I don't know why she she would be or even I would be at this point either
1: well, I've heard some you know some gritty guitar kind of rougher sounding stuff
0: Certainly. Oh, I, I I don't mean to say it's um, out of the realm, but, like, you know, you know what I think with the garage rock stuff, what really happened is that in San Francisco, like, eight years ago, there was a big garage rock zeitgeist. Um, everybody was kind of doing this stuff, and psych rock was big, and, um, you know, sunny and the sunsets and fresh and onlys and the OCs were all sort of, Kind of getting onto the international scene, I guess, a little bit at the same time. And I remember, I remember just by virtue of being sort of in the same scene, I guess, in the same era, being uh, sometimes described as psych rock, which I always thought was hilarious. Like I got nothing to do with psych rock, but um, uh, but I would see it in some, you know, some the printed word somewhere, and I'd be like, wow, that's funny. Like you just get you just get uh, grouped in, you know, with, with stuff. You know.
1: Yeah. It's the needing to pigeonhole. And if anything, if you look at all your records, if someone asked me, what's, what's, what's sunny, I, I would compare you to someone like Beck where there, there's no, there's no category.
0: Yeah. And that's, that was like, a that was something I really did, you know, for myself or to myself, however you want to look at it. But I was, I mean, the minute that, uh, that I was being pigeonholed as, like, garage rock or whatever when, like, Too Young to Burn was coming out, I made it like a country record, you know? So that was, and that, for instance, was a real, you know, one of those kind of moments where you are you want to do what you want to do, but it's not exactly what the labels want you to do. And I think I remember I was on Fat Possum at the time, for those first couple of sunsets records. And I remember telling him, I was like, well, I'm making a country record. And it was like, I didn't get a, I didn't get a email back for like a couple months.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and then, and then I was basically dropped from the label, more or less. They were basically like, um, they didn't say it officially like that because they never really do. But they, there was kind of like, well, give us a, you know, send us some, uh, send, send us some tunes when you aren't making country music was basically, you know, like their, uh, kind, wow. of, kind of their message. And I, I moved on to another label pretty quick, you know, and, and the, and the next label that I moved on to it, <clears throat> I had to negotiate basically a deal where I was like, you know, I want to put out this country record, you know, as a sunny and sunsets record. And they're like, yeah, okay. You know? Um, but like, after that, you're going to make like a rock record, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
0: and I was like well I think I am you know organically anyway like it's not it's not like uh this uh, so so part of the deal was that they would put out the country record as long as I gave them you know a rock record so that was like the next one was the sort of uh, well, not that you know all my discography but it was intended to the afterworld and it was mm-hmm. more lo-fi rock and roll and stuff like that that they were probably overjoyed
1: <laughs> well were you were you do you think it might not have been what it could have been but because you were pressured to make the rock record you mean like when you talk about it now you don't sound that enthusiastic about it
0: no no i mean i i, I no, i loved it i mean I was and and i was making it not because i was um obligated i was just making it because that's what i would have made anyway i think their worry was that i was just like gonna make country records from now on and they didn't know how to sell that, and that's not the product they wanted, and stuff. So they were just kind of more like, um, uh, "We'll put this out, but you are going to make a rock record." Right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> they wanted to like really clarify.
1: If you had ended up on some alt country le- label, you would have ended up disappointing them too.
0: Yeah, exactly. And which is which is kind of what we're talking about. Which is like it, it, the sort of overall theme. Which is like, <clears throat> when are you gonna? If you're gonna do what you want to do. And it's going to take you to these weird corners and not be pigeonholed. Then you definitely are going upstream, and you're lucky if you have a label that is supportive of it. But even the even the ones that are very supportive of any kind of creativity have a bottom line, and they're they have their worries and stresses about how to sell stuff and all that stuff. So it's like you just you end up really do. do I mean, one thing that I probably have gotten good at over the years is just saying no,
2: <laughs>
0: Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, um, and it's hard because when you do say no, you don't always get a call back. Like for instance, with fat possum, you know, if you do tell them what you actually want to do rather than sort of letting your arm be bent, you are sort of, it takes, it takes some balls basically. And it's just, can cause stress yeah for sure
1: you know you came to my mind about a year ago so i was like i haven't talked to any musicians and i thought of you and then i was in a cafe and i live in western massachusetts little town and i go into this cafe and there's a really uh really great guy named pete who also makes really good coffee um and I was sitting at the counter, and Pete was playing music. And he always he's kind of a, I guess he's probably mid-20s, heading into grad school. And this voice comes on, and it wasn't a song I knew. And I was like, is this Honey Smith? And he said, Sunny in the Sunsets? I'm like, yeah, yeah. That's an old friend of mine. And he was like, you know Sunny of Sunny in the Sunsets? And I was like, wow. I didn't realize you had
3: this reach
1: sonny <laughs> <laughs> yeah you have i mean you know whatever we talk about fame or success or not you have these fans who you don't know
0: uh, absolutely that's that is really weird that way that that happens and and i don't know what it's i know that i'm speaking for other artists out there and i don't know who they are but like my world is definitely very random in that way, like that, you, I will. And tour is a is a really um, uh, a vivid kind of reminder that it is very very random and arbitrary out there because you will sail into some small town, maybe I'll play, you know, New Haven or something that's not really on the map or whatever and there'll be not a large crowd, but then there will be some people that know all, all of my records that come to the show, but then there'll be, but then it won't, it's not like you're pulling into new Haven and a huge drove of people are coming, you know, Mm -hmm. and whatever I go on tour, it's up and down like that. And I'll get to some city and I'll be like, yeah, this is amazing. They know my music and there's people here. We're all going to have a great time. And, you get to the next and you're like, things are really working out there. I don't know how, you know, the shit's out there. um, That's a lovely feeling and people are enjoying the art and that's what you want when you're an artist, you know? And then the next town, there'll be like no one there, you know? And you're like, Oh, things are not working at all. (laughs) I, I should stay home. I should hang this up. And then you get to the next town and, you know, so maybe it's good again, and you're like, "Well, okay, yeah, all right, okay, yeah, and um, it's just very random out there i mean i I know that there's people probably like Dan Auerbach or whatever who they don't really experience that or whatever, you know, like they're just from town to town, there's always a guaranteed audience, you know, because they've broken through a certain public consciousness layer or something like that and then but then. You know, but for people like me and Kelly or other people were mentioning, you know, it's, I'm always hearing these kind of war stories from the road where they're like, yeah, we're in, we're in some little town in France and everybody showed up. It was amazing, you know, and then they're in some town in Spain and nobody showed up, you know, they don't know why.
1: (laughs) Yep. and And we certainly, I certainly know people you probably do too, like, I'll bet Virgil could show up in some weird town in Germany and a lot more people would know him than if he walked into New Haven
0: yeah or walked into the make out room
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean
0: yeah. it gets pretty random I mean, and also I mean the more cultish you sort of are I'm not saying necessarily Virgil is a cult cult guy but in a way he is because he's you know in certain pockets people still know Dieselhead and people know him and he's not that prolific. He's only come out with a few records in the last years. But like, yeah, it's weird. Like he, he'll probably show up in Petaluma, and whole crap, a load of people will show up, and then he play might play some little gig in San Francisco, and he's like, what's what what happened? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's too easy. It's like when
1: when I used to work at the Makeout Room, and Jonathan Richmond would do five nights in a row, and by the last night. You know, I couldn't even. I didn't even make fifty bucks bartending because it's too easy yeah. to see him there. <laughs> you know, you can just. Oh, you know, I'll catch him
0: the next week. He does. God, he's probably the the greatest example of that in a way of somebody who's just who is a cult's favorite, and people who know him, people who know music, know him, and he's like an American, you know, icon.
1: The thing that I think is is risky about. That, that you don't people don't consider who decide like i worked hard i'm gonna get fucking famous and they do yeah is that i feel like if i were dan auerbach for example i wouldn't trust the adoration as real anymore because if everybody loves you half of them don't know who the fuck you are and they know you're a rock star and if i met someone who's like I look I, I don't know that i would believe them i'd be like really i don't either yeah Whereas when somebody comes up to you after a show, they they you know and they know your records and they you know how did
0: it, does that mean a lot? Well, when somebody shows up and actually knows your music, it means everything. It's it's huge. It's like um, some sort of validation for all the compromises you have made, you know, creatively and stuff. So it is it is huge.
1: Did it feel at all odd, or was it just playing the song when you got up at Dan's show to play your song for his? crowd.
0: No, it didn't feel it didn't feel odd It felt like um it felt like you know Dan, somebody like Dan Auerbach has a certain kind of following that uh, like I don't even necessarily think then are not my people. Like yeah. you know, yeah. like the Black Keys fans are probably frat boys and, you know, I don't know. I I, I don't mean to I have no idea. He probably has a wide swath of of fans. But um, I don't necessarily think that they probably know about Sunny and the Sunsets per se. They they probably know about the White Stripes and the Black Keys and and whatever else. So they're kind of um, fans that sort of pay attention to the most popular bands out there. And so uh, I don't know if I have a point to that, but I definitely wasn't like... um, it wasn't like I felt home or anything, <laughs>
1: you know? right? And it, also, I suppose I'm imagining it in an odd way. If he had put it on a record as a cover and people knew it as him singing it, then it might have been a little odder. Like, yeah, that's this is my song that you already know, but it's just it was a song he was doing on the road, not one that his fans would be like, "Oh, you're the guy, you're the Cat Stevens who, <laughs> who made that song originally."
0: when I did hear their cover I was like oh oh okay that's fine that's fine that's not how I'd play it but uh that's cool <laughs> and that must be something that people like you know Bob Dylan or something must have experienced all like every day where they're like oh okay there's a there's a reggae version of my song okay that's neat yeah okay Hendrix version
1: oh I guess earlier when I mentioned her I was going to ask if you knew uh Angel Olsen before you've always had a great a series of great women singing with you. Uh, Jolie Holland, Alison Alstrom. Oh, yeah. So did that happen because of the album, or did you guys know each other?
0: Um, I think we had made friends. We had made friends because we had a mutual friend, which was her manager, who owned a record shop in um, Asheville. And we had stayed at their house on tour once, and I stayed in touch with her. So then when I had this song, I just i was i kind of took a stab in the dark and i was like would you want to sing on this that kind of thing sort of feeling a little
2: Mm -hmm.
0: humble (laughs) but she was down and um it was it was great and uh those kind of things happen really fast too you know like for her it was probably afternoon experience and she didn't look back or whatever and but um Uh, we stay in touch. We're friends and stuff. So it's nice. It's also nice that when somebody does, you know, there's, there's just as many sort of impersonal kind of experiences in those kind of things. I I would imagine movies are even more Where it's like, yeah, somebody was, I was in a movie with somebody. We were friends for about three weeks. (laughs) We were best friends. I never saw him again. (laughs) Um, But, but, but in the, like, public consciousness, there people are, like, associating both of you together because you were in the same piece of art, you know?
2: By the store, I
3: waited for the bus to fall. Pictures of you. trash can pictures of you pictures of you
1: You know what's also so weird about these days and selling out, and I only thought about it, and I've gotten much more, you know, I've tried to let go of my punk rock youth and hope that artists make money, but I still can't get past, like, like I said, I watch a lot of basketball, and about six months ago, and of course it's hurt it's occurred to me a million times every time a pop is used for another cruise line, but Public Enemy as a Nike ad, just seems to me like I I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like the bad guys have won. If that's not a problem for anybody, I think the uh,
0: the uh, opposite example was wasn't there wasn't 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 the story about the dead Kennedys like finally sort of breaking up was because or having some row within the band was because they wanted to sell a song from Holiday in Cambodia to an ad. Like and the rest of the band wanted to do it and General the Opera was like, No way. That's you know, antithesis to everything that we stand for and it was a real um it was it was almost maybe maybe it was a legal maybe it was a legal fight. I can't remember.
1: Today there
0: probably the gap, yeah. But
1: it, it I don't imagine any friends band or friend who's a musician saying no.
0: Well, not only are people not saying no, but um, that's that's kind of what people are going for now. I mean, every, the whole thing has changed. I mean, you know, back when, like, we're talking about, like, you, when we knew each other and lived in the same city and stuff, I mean, I remember distinctly that if musicians did any kind of um, commercial, they were sort of, it was a controversial kind of, Argument about selling out and stuff. That was a huge, huge conversation all the time, you know. Um, And 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 it was always a little bit of a double standard to 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 me to some extent because you know actors will do you know whatever uh, perfume ads in Japan. No one's like, oh, you know, Brad Pitt sold out or whatever. Maybe that might not be the best.
1: No, I think it is. Yeah,
0: but you know what I mean. Like no one ever questioned it. It was kind of like, well, that's just what you. That's just what you do to survive. Is you know sometimes you're a working actor and you are in great movies, but you have to make a commercial or whatever. And uh, I don't remember people tearing the actors up. And and nowadays, of course. Anytime anybody sees an actor on a commercial, no one's like, oh, I can't believe, you know, he's on a great TV show. How could he do this ad? Like, it's it's a given that it's okay. You know, it's just part of him trying to buy a house for his nephew or, you know, Morgan Freeman does a commercial every day, uh, you know, like, but no one, no one has ever taken away his integrity as like this sage-like actor guy that he is. But uh, I, I think the musicians, for some reason, were always like the last in line to get a pass. And I don't know why, per, per se. Uh, maybe it's just we're held to a almost like priests or something, you know, we're held to a higher standard or something like that. But but I will say that all seems to be in the past now. I mean, musicians put out music on labels, and the first thing labels are trying to do is sell it to commercials or tv shows or anything and um it's not really questioned
1: when i hear a small band that i know or, or even i see you know uh iggy move on to cadillac I, i'm like okay Iggy's cashing on the check that's good by me and I, I don't know if i like that that's who i am now but yeah it seems only fair uh, i don't know it's because you're kind of the poets you're the poets of our era
0: I guess so. Yeah. So we're held to some, it's a sacrilege to uh, hear. Well, do you remember, do you, I feel like the first one that was on my radar and maybe a lot of, maybe this is a uh, generational, but do you remember when uh, Nick Drake's pink moon was used in a Volkswagen commercial?
1: I sure do. It's a very pretty commercial. That was a big
0: one, wasn't it? Yeah. Wasn't that a big one?
1: It kind of made you tilt your head and be like, "I don't know how I'm supposed to
0: feel about this." And that one was particularly interesting too, because Nick Drake is dead. He doesn't need. He's not getting the money. But you know, I don't know what the uh, contractual things were. Maybe he has family that gets his money. But but that's a that was a weird one too, where it's like it, it did it did feel kind of sacrilegious in a way to see Pink Moon used in a Volkswagen commercial. Am I wrong?
1: D- didn't it? It, it totally, it totally did. And I remember kind of not liking that I started to come around. <laughs> yeah. Like, after I, after I saw it long enough, I was like, Oh, this is pretty. Oh, there's that ad. <laughs> and instead of being <laughs> yeah. furious all over again, I was like, you know, and then probably the next step is, hey, Volkswagens are pretty nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that. Uh, maybe Volkswagen's not so bad if they know about Nick Drake. <laughs> yeah. Um, But I feel like that era is gone for sure. Yeah. And now it comes down to sort of um, who, you know, if you even have the opportunities to sell your work, commercial things, you have to sort of, it's another realm where you have to make choices
1: yeah and whether you're willing to just you know if if somebody in new york at an agency heard pictures of you and wanted to use it for kodak is there still a kodak that's one thing but and i suppose the the choice is do you want someone out there pitching them is does someone do you have a person like that
0: yeah yeah i have a you have a well i have a publisher and so, um, you know, I, I, at this level, I guess is how I'd put it. You know, you, you, you put your records out on a label and then you have a separate company that is your publisher and their job is to go search for sinks. Um, and also to administrate, you know, royalties and make sure that you're getting the money from, from, from different uses of your songs. So, um, you know, in theory, you have a publishing company that is ambitious and busy and trying to make shit happen. A lot of people have publishing companies. You, you it, It's almost just like, could be like anything else. You might be sort of like the bench sitter of this organization. They're not really working hard for you. You know, that's a constant complaint about by artists is that they have all these sort of um, teams in place, but they're not successful enough that the teams do anything for them you know what i mean
1: <laughs> certainly hear comedians making those complaints and then the, the the loyalty issue uh in uh uh if you i don't know if you ever do you watch much tv lady dynamite maria bamford's
0: oh yeah i've watched that yeah i
1: love her bizarre comedy yeah she has her agent who she's so loyal to who's such a fucking disaster <laughs>
0: You know what? A great show, speaking of shows that really illustrated that well was, did you ever watch extras? Ricky Gervais's I two did. season, which was one of my favorite <sighs> Yeah. Uh, just TV uh, arcs of all time. Just showing this guy go from a, from a nobody to a somebody in England. And he had the same thing. I mean, it was a, it was beautifully done because his, his, you know, manager or, or agent, I'm not sure what he was called, but the Stephen Merchant character was, uh, you know, obviously like a fumbling idiot who didn't care. And, you know, I love that show. And Ricky Gervais just played kind of the straight, innocent guy.
1: <laughs> and it, it so outlines the pitfalls of, of fame and of just saying yes, because he's, he's, he's stuck being the guy saying, are you having a laugh? Like that's that's his life. Yeah, he
0: sold out. He sold out, and then he couldn't handle it at the end. Yeah, I love that. Uh, most uh, seasons. God, that was the best. Yeah. Well, that 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 whole show was a meditation on fame. It was really great. The one thing
1: I haven't checked out, as I've been listening to records in between, last I listened to you is the Hundred Records Project.
0: Oh yeah, you gotta check that out. That
1: sounds so much fun. <laughs> yeah.
0: That was the best project.
1: Uh yeah, I see some names from old school when I, I looked it up.
0: Oh many names that you know, yeah.
2: <laughs> I feel yeah, like of course. I must have made
0: yeah. that right after you like in the era you had already left. I had left. I had left. it's it's 2007, a seven, is that when you left or so? Or? I left
1: in two thousand five.
0: You were one of the first to get out, Jamie.
1: Yeah, uh, well, I, the idea wasn't to, it, it's very strange after a lifetime in cities, you know, from Albany to New York to San Francisco to Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, and I thought I'd be here for two years, and it just, it's become almost, uh, can't imagine leaving, can't imagine staying forever home. you're. It's kind of like, you know, it's my little Fairfax, which I never had growing up. I was going to mention this at some point, but I've always felt that you are... Maybe it's just because I know just this one little, you know, five-year span of people. But so many creative people came out of Fairfax.
0: Well, it's funny because uh, Adam Ellis, I don't know if you ever knew him, but he was the— Yep, yep. He he came out of Fairfax. Well, he came out of Woodacre, but I, they're so close together, I just lump them in together. But he was—he grew up— In Woodacre, which is right next to Fairfax, and went to high school in Fairfax, and he was part of that too. And he, we were, uh, he he went on tour with me this last little tour, and we were talking a lot about that. And he he was like, I don't know, I feel, he he felt like Fairfax is some kind of weird, almost like Lubbock, you know, like where there's just, why is there so many songwriters that came out of this one little town?
1: Ah, so it's not just me.
0: but he actually kind of broke it down and was like talking about our parents, our parents all, um, you know, my dad was a banjo player. Virgil's dad was a banjo player. They were all in the same music scene together in Fairfax, which was this, which would play like string band music, you know, old time Appalachian type tunes and stuff. They would all sit around in the seventies and eighties and have house parties and play all these fiddle tunes all night and stuff. And when we were, and kind of like very American songbook type stuff. And so when we were growing up, even though I can't totally speak for Virgil, but we've talked about it, you know, we we didn't like it at all. You know, we, we would rather watch the A team or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and listen to ACDC or whatever, but like it got in there. I mean, our families were just doing it in the house. So there was a lot of Americana type music being played around us. So to some extent it makes sense that we would end up being songwriters, uh, probably more than like, you know, house DJs. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like there's a reason we, we probably gravitated towards (laughs) a certain kind of, uh, music and um even if you even if we grow up and go in our own directions and virgil makes this kind of music and i make that kind of music i think at the root of it you can kind of hear a lot of that sort of american songwriter type stuff you know yeah so we have our parents to blame i guess
1: blame or thank or both uh when when you thought about talking to me and, and my, my little topic, did anything come to mind that I uh, haven't hit on?
0: I, um, you know, if you're calling it, uh, since it's a podcast about fame, you know, it, it is kind of hard to think about fame and it's kind of hard to talk about mm-hmm. fame without sounding like, um, without sometimes kind of sounding like an asshole, like um, because it is a weird, elusive quality. And it's also very, uh, it it just seems very relative, you know, like there's like, we're talking about, there's these people who are absolutely famous and stuff like that. Like Dan, the Dan Auerbachs of the world and stuff.
1: But then there's so many niches.
0: Uh, Yeah. And, 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 and I guess I didn't really, meditate on it too much but just it, it I do think about it how it's just it is in our face all the time and it and it is and the way that things are sort of oriented now you can't you can't really get away from it I mean I guess that's kind of vague but for instance nowadays and I don't know exactly what it was like in 2005 I can't quite remember even but nowadays it's like Instagram follower amounts and all that stuff are, are being um, looked at when people book you and, and um, the media is interested in how many Facebook followers you have and all that stuff. And I, I guess the one thing that I, I sort of think about sometimes and particularly at different times in my career when I've had highs and lows, is that I noticed that a lot of journalists, when they write about music, they're not even really writing about music. They're almost like, they're not music journalists, they're success journalists. Mm-hmm. They sort of are are incredibly intrigued about how much success somebody has. And, and sometimes when you read about, uh, sometimes I don't even get out there too hard and read about new music but when i do i often will be reading a review or something and, and realizing that the at least the first couple paragraphs will not be so much about the music but will be about the incredible success story that this uh, person has had you know and then i and then i kind of realize that that's happening not just in music but all the time like you know all magazines all online cultural things are, are often, uh, you know, about the amazing success that this person has had, even if the, whatever they're doing is good or bad or whatever. And, and, um, and it follows all the way up to like our modern day president and all that stuff. And it's not so much about achievements or what they actually do or say, it's just about how much, you know, um, followers they have on Twitter or how much, you know, um, how much ratings and all that stuff. And it just seems like sort of contemporary American culture is, is so, so obsessed with success, um, and a certain version of it that, that, that what, what people are actually doing is kind of like secondary or third or fourth.
1: Yeah. I kind of I beat my listeners to death about this. Fame is interesting to me in part because Donald Trump has been good at one thing his whole life. He got famous. He was born rich. He managed to stay rich or not, depending on who you ask. He got famous not even as a good guy on his own show. Yeah. And, and, and it's a virtue in and of it. Success is a virtue in and of itself. And success is money or fame. Yeah, not what you do with it. And you're right. The profiles, celebrity profiles, just feed. It all feeds. It's a very hungry animal.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The last thing I like to ask people because they, they they tend to, are there any heroes who have, a, who have, who either you who would you most like to be like? Get an email from like, hey, Sonny Smith. I just listened to your new record. This is Elvis Costello, and I I really wanted you to know it's great. Or you, or have you gotten any accolade or any like? pat on the back from someone who you looked up to, uh, that meant a
0: lot. I, I did want, I did get one this year, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, uh, I, I, reached out to Robin Hitchcock huh. to, um, to, uh, do a piece of art for the art show that I was doing about touring and stuff. And, um, and I, and I, and you know, Robin Hitchcock is not, um, like a household name mm-hmm. but like to you and me, you know, uh, he's the one of the greatest. And 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 um and I was I just found myself composing this email to him and taking care of like every word you know? <laughs> and then realizing that I was like I basically a fanboy and um even though I'm forty five years old and that should should kind of be over or whatever. But I was like my hands were kind of clammy sure. and i was waiting for his reply over a few days engaging you know, <laughs> my um worth in life accordingly to like his what his reply would be and all that stuff um uh, so um when he was just a normal down-to-earth person i was like oh my god mm, he's like a normal human being you great. know like you could talk to him you know and uh why would I think anything different? You know, like he, of course he would be. And and, and again, it's kind of hilarious that that's my guy because he's not like I said, yeah, he's not a household name. But um to me I was like oh wow, Robin Hitchcock. What did what's
1: the <laughs> what were you writing him about?
0: Well, this art show that I did about tour, um, at Gallery sixteen, I was just looking for other people to also contribute some kind of drawing or, or maybe a little excerpt about the road, you know, um, that I could include in this sort of tour zine that I was putting together in conjunction with the show and stuff. So it was, it was a a humble little thing. Um, But when I kind of tracked him down through somebody on Instagram that I randomly follow who had pictures of themselves with him. I was like, do you know Robin Hitchcock? You know, I kind of think. And she was like, yeah, he's like my friend, he's normal, you know. Um. So it was kind of like that, you know. But um, I actually know Robin a little
1: bit and have sung karaoke with him and blew him off the fucking karaoke stage with my Neil Diamond. Oh, good. I, I gotta say. The crowd was just like, Robin who? signed this Jamie guy up. <laughs> yeah. I like that he's friends of um my friend eugene uh merman and he's who is a comic who likes to m- bring musicians into you know shows he does and so I met him too and Eugene is like the biggest robin fan on earth yeah, me too that's a great story. Is there anyone else on your list bucket list of 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 heroes you'd like to write another clammy letter to i
0: i don't have a i don't have a bucket list like that in my head but um the only other one that was uh, comes to mind that was also that sense of like wow I can't believe it and this is also kind of hilarious because it's pretty obscure and it's also doesn't amount to much you know what I mean it's not like um, I love you know some rock star and now we're friends and we're gonna hang out but um, when I did the when I did the uh, monologue a couple of years ago I did this kind of Spalding Gray type story where I um, stood on stage and just told a story for like 45 minutes just with, and with some music in the background, but nothing, but, Ooh, I thought but it was, hear that. yeah, I'll send you the record. Um, Chris Johansson did the art and it's, it's, it's one of those, another one of those records in a way with, in keeping with our conversation where I had to, kind of tell my label i was like yeah i'm making a spoken word record you know basically (laughs) (laughs) and uh they were like well good luck with that you know and um you know luckily i found a friend who has a local label who put it out and stuff so it's it was i was just i couldn't believe that somebody would put it out anyway but um when i made it i uh it was very spalding gray-esque you know and um somehow maybe on Facebook or some social media saw that Spalding Gray's widow who manages his estate, um, mm-hmm. bought it, ordered it from the label oh. and said something nice about it. And, um, I contacted her. I was like, I can't believe, you know, thank God, you know, uh, thank you so much for, I mean, I was basically like, you know, Thank you, thanking this person for having done something pretty normal, which is, like, listen to something. And because you adore her her deceased husband's work. It was like, yeah, it was like a huge moment where I was like, I can't believe I'm tangentially connected for 30 minutes to somebody who was, you know, married to, you know, it's pretty, it's kind of ridiculous, you know, but it's... um, but it's real too. I mean
2: yeah,
1: oh, it is oh, and it means a lot. I, you have it's almost like a setup that you mentioned those two people because Spaulding, I always always wanted to when I you know when I did my solo performance stuff, it was kind of it was like in San Francisco before we really knew each other. Um, but I brought these two 45 minute pieces back and did them in New York. and friends of hers were someone was her relative of her her in-law and got them info about the show and they 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 had reservations to come but they didn't show up (laughs) and i have other times when i used to go get my book signed by him and I, i i stammered and stuttered and once i rode a plane from san francisco to new york and i sat behind uh them and their their two kids and one of them right behind them and one of them dropped a drawing that said, "Like mommy, daddy, me, no mommy, whatever the sister's name was, me." And then it said Spalding, which is what he called his father. And I and I didn't give it back. I kept the drawing, of course. I wasn't going to give that back, no way. And I I have it somewhere. I haven't seen it in years. Uh, but yeah, never got Spalding
0: to see my work. That's kind of in keeping with. How you know how it kind of affects us? But I almost to that one I have to say. I mean, we we deserve a little bit pat on our back because that's not just about fame. You know, that's like, you know, if if my kid met one of the guys from Migos or something, that would be like he loves them because they are you know famous or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But 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 when we but when we I, I would like to think that there's a difference when we. Are like wow, spawning Gray almost came to my show. <laughs> it's not about fame anymore. It's more about like artistic heroes, I guess. Uh, Absolutely. And, and and something that has affected our lives for more than you know three minutes or whatever. Yes,
1: it would mean a lot more for someone you know and that I probably was at parties with back in the day. Uh, it would mean a lot more for me to have. Miranda July like something I do Than to have George Clooney like something I do So yeah, it's about the art Yeah That's one of the best parts of doing this To have an excuse to get on the phone with people I haven't talked to in 15 yeah. years Yeah. So thanks man
0: Yeah man Hey, I mean this You could include this in your podcast Because this is actually has to do with A really great story about fame Actually this is the best story I'm glad if you can hang Yeah, you bet I mean, it's not exactly a story, but when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, 15 and 16, Adam was in a band um, called Psycho Funkopus, which was a real, you know, hilarious night, early 90s, you know, red hot chili peppers type band <laughs> or something. It was probably his first band. Yep,
1: that's what the name suggests. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, yeah, I definitely, Adam had like some big hair and was slapping the bass and all that stuff and um but they were like our heroes when we were like 15 because they would play shows and us as teenagers even before we had cars would go to their shows and we would like skateboard outside their shows and smoke cigarettes and go into the show and the shows were amazing at least for 15 year olds in 1989 you know and um It was incredible. It was incredible. And, and, the, and, and the, they were kind of like heroes to us as kids, you know, like, and they actually played our graduation party. And so he was in some dopey band that was playing like, you know, high school proms basically to him. He was probably, you know, eternally embarrassed or whatever <laughs> to me, you know, it was like some, some hero from my childhood, so you know, over the years, when I've had him, when I've m- met up with him and 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 had him in my band and stuff, I'm always like, you know, tell me about the psychophunga pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, yeah. please don't talk to me ever again about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's you know just eternally embarrassed. And he, I, I can totally understand that he would be because it's not music that he or I would you know get behind it was he was 20 and he was in some dopey funk band of that era whatever but um whenever i you know i took him on this last little tour and we were playing on stage and stuff and i would look over him at a couple times and i was like there he is there's the guy that played (laughs) our high school dance so
1: was he he he
0: was a little older he was—he's like five years older than me. Yeah? Oh, yeah, that's—he so was stuff just right enough there. to be like twenty when I was fifteen, and in a band that was like getting around the Bay Area and stuff. Yeah, but uh, so yep. hilarious, you know? Like, so it doesn't even go away. I guess <laughs> is maybe the moral of the story. Like, I'm still sometimes I look at him. I'm like, you are my hero. You know? Like, we used your band used to make us lie oh, down and so then jump great. up and then we would march. Slam dance and whatever you call it, man. (laughs) And he's probably just mortally embarrassed to even be mentioned in this podcast. I'd love to catch
1: up more about San Francisco, and I'm always frustrated that life doesn't let me get there more than every few years. So uh, we will shoot that shit in a couple weeks. Okay,
0: great. Sounds great, man. Thanks. All right, Jamie. Well, thank you. Talk to you soon. All right, man.
1: You can find all things Sonny Smith at sonnysmith.com. You can find out all the episodes of this show at 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's the numerals one five M I N U T E S J A M I E B E R G E R.com. And a quick announcement that uh, it's going to be a little uh, side project, offshoot of this podcast. Once a month, uh, Dan Oppenheimer, who's been a guest twice, who is a, uh, a writer and thinker on things political and social. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try making a podcast called Entitled. And we're going to talk about being two white guys with thoughts and feelings about things in the world and how to proceed as our demographic to both respect the changes that are happening and still have a voice. And we'll see how that works out. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. That'll start in August. Uh, Coming up next in July is Chris Napolitano, part two, uh, former editor-in-chief at Playboy, talking about things like Donald Trump and the Playboy Mansion and other decadent, disgusting crap like that. Hope you are well. Enjoy the 4th of July if you happen to hear this before then. Otherwise, keep fighting the good fight. And, oh, Ed Patnode, Engineers the Show. This is 15 Minutes. I'm...
2: Jamie Burger.